Shall we pray? Almighty God, all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, we come before you this evening thanking you for your holy word. Father, it would be a terrible thing to be in this world without your holy book because we wouldn't know what's happening and where things are moving to. But we thank you that you have given, given us a sure compass that tells us where we came from, why we're here, and where things are moving to. We ask, Father, for the guidance of your Holy Spirit as we open your word. And we thank you for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that we want to do today in our study is to review what we studied in our last lecture. And I'm going to go through this quickly, so hopefully you were here last time and uh, the review will be sufficient in order to understand where we're going uh, in Scripture in our study tonight. You remember that last time we studied the first part of the 70 weeks. And basically, we notice that the prophecy of the 70 weeks begins from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem. We notice that there were four decrees given with regards to Jerusalem. The first decree was given in 536 by Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. The second decree was given by Darius in the year 520. Neither one of these decrees authorized the restoration and building of Jerusalem. They only authorized the building of the temple. And then we notice the third decree, which was the decree of Artaxerxes I. It was given in the year 457 B.C. And we notice that this is the decree that fits the biblical criteria for the beginning of the 70 weeks. And that's for three reasons. First of all, Artaxerxes uses the same word, dabar, command, as is used in Daniel chapter 9. Secondly, the other dates, 536 and 520, are far too early for this to be a messianic prophecy. And the last decree, which was given in 445, which was really a reaffirmation of the decree that Artaxerxes had given in the year 457, is too late. And so none of the other three decrees fit the criteria as to time or the use of the specific word dabar, which means command or decree. A third reason is that we noticed in our study that the decree of Artaxerxes is the only one that ought the Jews to reestablish their political and social order. None of the other decrees authorized them to really begin, once again, the functioning of the Hebrew theocracy. So we notice that the decree to uh, restore and build Jerusalem began in the year 457 B.C. Actually, it was in the fall of 457 B.C. And then we notice that during the first seven weeks, the first 49 years, 7 times 7, 49, uh, was this period of the restoring and building of Jerusalem. And it was done in troublesome times. You can read, for example, the book of Ezra, all sorts of troubles and opposition in the restoration of the city and the religion of the Jewish nation. So the first seven weeks have to do with the restoration and building of Jerusalem. And then it says after 62 additional weeks, the Messiah would come. 
And the word Messiah means what? The word Messiah means the anointed one. And we notice that Jesus was anointed at what event of his life? He was anointed at the moment of his baptism with the Holy Spirit. That is when the Messiah comes. And that takes place in the year 27 A.D., in fact, in the fall of the year 27. It would have to be in the fall of the year 27 because the decree of Artaxerxes was given in the fall of 457. So you go forward 483 years when the Messiah is anointed, he would have to be anointed in the fall for that to be exactly 69 weeks. Are you following me or not? Now, another reason why we know it was in the fall is because Jesus was killed in the spring. So in order to know when he was anointed three and a half years earlier, you would have to go back three and a half years from the spring of the year 31 when he was crucified. So you go back to the spring of the year 30, to the spring of the year 29, to the spring of the year 28, and then another half a year to the fall of the year 27. So in other words, the Messiah was anointed on, in the year 27 A.D. And then we notice that sometime during this last week, it's not specified in verse 26, sometime during this last week, the Messiah would be cut off, which means that he would kill, be killed. But it would not be for himself, it would be for others. And then we notice that as a result of the cutting off of the Messiah, Jerusalem would be destroyed. And in our study, we noticed that Jerusalem would be destroyed by the people of the prince. And we saw three possibilities as to who uh, is the one who, who are the ones or is the one who brought about the destruction of Jerusalem. The first idea is that it was Titus. We notice that it cannot be Titus because Titus did not confirm the covenant for one week and Titus did not bring the sacrifice and offering to an end in the middle of the last week. So Titus cannot fulfill this. It also is not referring to some future Antichrist after the rapture of the church because we are studying this prophecy in detail and we notice that this prophecy does not deal with Antichrist. This prophecy deals with whom? It deals with Christ. It's a serious thing to take a prophecy that applies to Christ and apply it to the Antichrist. The devil does not want people to know about this prophecy because it is so exact and specific as to when the Messiah was going to come that the devil knows that if people understand that, they'll say, God knows the end from the beginning, and Jesus came exactly at the right time. So we noticed in our study that the prince is actually Jesus. He's already been identified as Messiah the prince. And so the prince is the Messiah, and the people of the prince are whom? The people of the prince are the Jewish nation. And you say, Pastor, did the Jewish nation destroy Jerusalem? What is the answer to that question? Yes, they did. They did by rejecting the Messiah, by rejecting Jesus Christ. Now we're at the point where we can begin some new material studying the rest of the prophecy of the 70 weeks. And I invite you to go with me to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, where we will continue our study. Now you notice that in verse 26 it tells us that sometime during the last week, Messiah would be cut off. But it doesn't tell us precisely when during that last week, Messiah would be cut off. But verse 27 tells us specifically when 
he would be cut off. And it also tells us that he would confirm the covenant for one week. Now let's talk about, first of all, the confirming of the covenant for this last week, week number 70. Daniel 9 verse 27 says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. I'm reading from the New King James. Actually, many modern versions do not translate he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but actually he shall make strong the covenant or a covenant for one week. For example, the English Standard Version says, and he shall make strong, a strong covenant with many for one week. The New American Standard Bible says, he shall make a firm covenant. The RSV says, he shall make a strong covenant. And Young's literal translation says, and he shall, uh, and he hath strengthened a covenant with many. So this was not just a covenant, this was a strong covenant that Messiah the Prince was going to confirm. Now let me ask you, what is the antonym of strong? You know what antonym means? It means the opposite. The antonym of strong is what? Weak. Now why is this covenant that is confirmed for one week by Messiah the Prince strong? We have to go to the book of Hebrews to understand the reason why. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll read verses 18 and 19, and then we'll jump down to verse 28. Hebrews 7, 18 and 19, and verse 28. This is talking about the Old Testament system of sacrifices, the ceremonial system of the Old Testament. Question, did the ceremonial system of the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats, take away sin? We noticed that it didn't. So was it a weak covenant compared to the blood that Jesus shed on the cross? Absolutely. Now notice the words that are used in Hebrews chapter 7, 18 and 19. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment. This is not talking about the Ten Commandments. The former commandment has to do here with the priesthood, with the ceremonies, if you read the context. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its what? its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law, and it's talking about the law of sacrifices, the ceremonial law, you can read the context, for the law made nothing perfect. In other words, it did not deal once and for all with sin. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a what? A better hope. Jesus brings in a better hope through which we draw near to God. And then we go to verse 28. It says, for the law, once again, it's the law of sacrifices. For the law appoints as high priests men who have what? There's the word again. Weakness. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been what? Who has been perfected forever. So what was the Old Testament system? It was what? It was weak because it did not deal legally and once for all with sin. Notice Matthew 26 and verses 27 and 28. Matthew 26, 27 and 28. Here Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper in place of the Passover. And notice what we find here in Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28. Then he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my what? 
This is my blood. Was the blood of Jesus better blood than the blood that was used in the Old Testament system? Absolutely, because it dealt once and, all, once and for all with sin. And so it says, for this is my blood of the what? Is the new covenant a covenant that has better blood? Is it a strong covenant? Yes. And so it says here, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which and which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Did you notice that word many? In Daniel chapter 9 it says, He will confirm a strong covenant with what? With many for one week. Here you have Jesus using the word many in conjunction with new covenant because it has better blood. Notice Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. Why this new covenant is better than the old covenant of sacrifices and ceremonies. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6 says, But now, speaking about Jesus, He has obtained a more excellent ministry. Why, do, why has Jesus uh, represented now a more excellent ministry? Notice, inasmuch as He is the, also the mediator of a what? Of a better covenant which was established on what? On better promises. What are those better promises? The fact that when Jesus shed his blood, he took care of sin once and for all. Did we uh, study one topic here where we dealt with the moral law and the ceremonial law? Remember, we talked about the law of ceremonies, the blood and bull, of bulls and goats does not take away sin. This old covenant blood, it was good because as people looked at the sacrifice of the animal, they could see forward by faith that Jesus was going to come and he was going to shed his blood to die. But this blood from the Old Testament system did not save. It's the blood of Jesus that saves. So this is the reason why he would confirm a strong covenant, not a weak covenant like we read in Hebrews chapter 7. Notice also Mark chapter 10 in verse 45. Once, we, once again, the word many is used. Mark 10 and verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There it is again. He will confirm a strong covenant with many. Here it says that Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. Notice also Isaiah 53 and verse 11. Isaiah 53 and verse 11. This is a messianic prophecy. It's about Jesus. The whole chapter speaks about the Messiah. And it says there, speaking about the Messiah, He shall see the labor of His soul and be satisfied. By His knowledge, my righteous servant, servant shall justify what? There it is again. Many, for He shall bear what? For He shall bear their iniquities. Now, let me ask you this. When Jesus confirmed the covenant for one whole week, does that mean that the door of probation had not closed for the Jewish nation during that entire week? Absolutely. Did probation close for the Jews when Jesus was crucified? Absolutely not, because that takes us only to the middle of the last week. And after that, there are still three and a half years. Did Jesus send additional messengers to the Jewish nation after his death and his ascension to heaven? Absolutely. Go with me to Matthew chapter 23 and verse 34. Matthew 23 and verse 34. 
And we're going to read several verses that come after verse 34. It says, and here Jesus is speaking, these are the woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. Therefore indeed I send you, this is two or three days before Jesus dies, therefore indeed I send you prophets. Was the gift of prophecy still available for the Jewish nation? Yes, that's very important. Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. What were they going to do to them when Jesus sent them? Some of them you, notice this is future, this is future from the time that Jesus dies. He says, some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Were they going to do the same thing with the apostles as they did with Jesus? For three and a half more years. And then notice that the sentence would be pronounced. After he sends these additional messengers, it says that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of, of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Are you understanding the sequence here? Jesus says, I'm going to send you additional messengers. And you're going to scourge some. You're going to persecute them from city to city. You're going to crucify and you're going to kill some of them. And in this way, all of the blood shed from Abel to the last martyr of the Old Testament will fall upon this generation. Now let's talk about the second phrase that we find here in verse 27. It not only says that Jesus would confirm a strong covenant with many for one week, but now it tells us when the Messiah would be cut off. See, in verse 26 it only said, sometime during the last week Messiah would be cut off. But now verse 27 is going to tell us when during that last week. Verse 27 says, but in the middle of the week, that is between 27 and 31 AD, what would he do? He shall bring what? He shall bring an end to sacrifice and what? To sacrifice and offering. Now, something very interesting here is that the word sacrifice is singular. And the word offering is singular. It doesn't say bring an end to sacrifices and offerings. It says he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, why is the singular used? I'm going to tell you the reason why I believe that the singular is used and not the plural. Do you know that Jesus died at the precise hour, day, and month in which had been, it had been prophesied in the Old Testament? The Bible says he died at the ninth hour. That's the hour when the Passover lamb was sacrificed. He died on the 14th day. That's when the Passover lamb was sacrificed. And he, was, and he died in the month of Nisan, which is the month when the Passover lamb was sacrificed. Jesus died at the precise month, day, and hour in which the Passover lamb was sacrificed. And now I want you to notice what happened when Jesus died. Matthew 27 and verse 51. Matthew 27 and verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What was God saying? He was saying this whole system has what? Has come to an end. 
Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from, notice from top to bottom. If you're going to tear a curtain, you would put, tear it from bottom to top. You don't climb on a chair and then tear it from, bottom, from top to bottom. God did this. And it says, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Ellen White adds some enlightening information on what happened the very moment that Jesus died. Desire of Ages, page 757, she says this, All is terror and confusion. The priest is about to slay the victim, but the knife drops from his nerveless hand, and the lamb escapes. Did the sacrifice come to an end? Did the offering come to an end at that very moment? Yes. And so it says, she says, the lamb escapes. And then she explains why. Type has met anti-type. That is, promise has meant fulfillment in the death of God's Son. The great sacrifice has been made. Do you think that it was the intention of Jesus that the Jews understand, understand that really the escape of the Lamb, the fact that no Lamb was sacrificed that day, was supposed to teach them that the sacrificial system had come to an end? That was God's intention. Now they continued their sacrifices after this, but after the sacrifice of Jesus, these sacrifices were totally what? Totally meaningless. Because the blood of bulls and goats and lambs cannot take away sin. So the sacrifice and offering, singular, came to an end that day because when Jesus died, the sacrifice was not made, the offering was not made because the lamb escaped from the hands of the priest. Are you following me? Now let's talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. Because immediately after saying that he would confirm a strong covenant with many for one week, and then it says in the middle of the week he was caught, would cause the sacrifice and the oblation or the offering to cease, immediately it speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem. Does the destruction of Jerusalem have anything to do with the rejection of the Messiah? Both times, Messiah's cut up, cut off in verse 26, and then it speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem. In verse 27, it speaks about Messiah bringing the sacrifice and offering to an end, and then it speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem. And the Gospels confirm this. Daniel 9, verse 27, the last part of the verse describes the destruction of Jerusalem. It says, and on the wing of abominations, is that a key word? It most certainly is. On the wing of abominations shall be one who makes what? Is that a key word also? Most certainly. On the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the what? Is poured out on the desolate. And who is the desolate? It is Jerusalem. Do you remember when Jesus left the Jerusalem temple? He said, your house is left unto you what? Desolate, because Jesus left. In other words, this verse of Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, when it uses the word desolate to refer to Jerusalem, it's using the same word that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 38 when he left the temple, the Shekinah left, and he said, your house is left unto you desolate. By the way, they are the same two words, abomination and desolation, that are used in Matthew 24 verses 15 and 16, to describe the destruction of Jerusalem. Notice what it says there, Matthew 24, 15 and 16. 
Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, there are the two key words that we found in verse 27. Now, who spoke about the abomination of desolation? Oh, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Did God's faithful people see the sign and flee? Were they saved from the destruction? Yes, just like when the Old Testament temple was destroyed. There was a group that were spared and they were saved. Now, what does that mean when you see the abomination of desolation? It's really speaking about the Roman armies coming and destroying Jerusalem because of its abominations. Notice Luke 21 and verse 20. Luke 21 and verse 20. Here it says, and Jesus is speaking, but when you see, this is a parallel passage to Matthew 24, when you see Jerusalem, what? Surrounded by armies. Which armies? The Roman armies. Then know that it's what? There's the key word. Its desolation is what? Is near. So does the destruction of Jerusalem have anything to do with the, with the death of the Messiah? The Gospels make it absolutely clear that because the Jewish nation cut off the Messiah and because they caused, to a certain extent, the, the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, not in the sense that they didn't continue their sacrifices, but in the sense that Jesus died on the cross, they brought destruction upon themselves, as we studied last time. Now let's talk about the ending date of the 70 weeks. Jesus was baptized in the fall of the year 27. He was crucified in the spring of the year 31, three and a half years later. How many more years would you have to have in order for the last week of the 70 weeks to come to an end? You would have to have three and a half more years. Now, I want you to notice Matthew chapter 10 and verses 5 and 6. Here Jesus is speaking, and notice what Jesus told to his disciples. Matthew 10, 5 and 6. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of what? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. Were the Jews going to have exactly 70 weeks of probation? Yes or no? Yes. So their probation cannot end in the year 31. Their probation has to end three and a half years later. Now, there's something very interesting here. And that is that the first nine chapters of the book of Acts, which describe the early history of the Christian church during those three and a half years, the gospel went only to the Jews. It's not until you get to Acts chapter 10 that now not Paul, the messenger to the Gentiles, but Peter actually has the experience with this Gentile called Cornelius. So in other words, during the first, ten chap the first nine chapters of Acts, the apostles are preaching to who? They're preaching in Jerusalem and in Judea. Why? Because probation has not what? Probation has not closed for the Jewish nation. Allow me to read you once again, Matthew 23 and verse 34, where Jesus predicted this. Jesus says, therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. 
Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Who is it that persecuted from city to city? Saul of Tarsus. Now, let me read you a statement from Great Controversy, page 28, where Ellen White describes this period after the crucifixion of Christ. She says, Through the preaching of the apostles and their associates, God would cause light to shine upon them, that is, upon the children of those who had betrayed Jesus. She continues saying, They would be permitted to see how prophecy had been fulfilled not only in the birth and life of Christ, but in His death and resurrection. The children were not condemned for the sins of the parents, but when with a knowledge of all the light given to their parents, the children rejected the additional light granted to themselves, they became partakers of their parents' sins and filled up the measure of their iniquity. How did the Jews react during those three and a half years of additional probation? Did they say, oh, we received the Messiah, we received Jesus Christ? All you have to do is read the first several chapters of the book of Acts. They did to the apostles the same thing that they did to Jesus Christ. You can read, for example, about Peter and John, how they were taken before the Jewish Sanhedrin, and they were forbidden to speak in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, notice that in Acts chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, Acts chapter 4, 17 and 18, it says, but so that it spreads no further. This, these are, they're speaking in the Sanhedrin, in the Jewish council, because Peter and John are preaching and people are being converted. But so that it spreads no further among the people, that is their message, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the what? In the name of Jesus. Did they accept Jesus Christ in these three and a half years of additional probation? Absolutely not. They opposed just like they had while Jesus was on this earth. Now Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, you remember that Daniel 9 verse 24 said, that one of the things that would be accomplished during the 70 weeks is that vision and prophecy would be brought to what? Actually, it would be sealed up. But you know, that expression, sealed up, is the identical expression that is used earlier in the verse where it says, he shall bring an end to sins. In other words, really, the Hebrew word chatham really means seal up or bring to an end. In other words, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 is saying that vision and prophecy would be coming to an end. Let's read that verse, Daniel 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. That's the very word that is used later in the verse to seal up. In other words, it says to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up that's the identical Hebrew word that is translated, bring an end to sins. So here it should be translated, what? Bring an end to what? To vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So what was going to happen at the end of this period? Vision and prophecy would come to what? Would come to an end. Is that exactly what happened? Absolutely. Now let me tell you something about the role of the prophet in the Old Testament. 
The role of the prophet in the Old Testament is that when Israel was very, very unfaithful, constantly, all the time, God would send them prophets to, they were actually God's, uh, God's lawyers in divorce court. God would say, you know, I'm going to divorce you because, of you, because you've uh, fallen in love with uh, the practices of the nations. And, you know, you've had other lovers. You've played the harlot. And so he would send prophets and he would say, I want a divorce. But then there was always hope. He would say, but if you repent and you turn from your wicked ways, then I will relent from the idea of divorcing you. And whenever you find these prophets in the Old Testament giving this message to Israel, you find that they always told the story of the benevolent acts of God upon his people. They would go through a long description of the history of Israel and how God had been good to Israel to try and woo Israel back to the Lord. In other words, when prophets were raised up to rebuke Israel, they called Israel to repentance and they expressed that there was still an opportunity for mercy. But now we go to the stoning of Stephen and we find no message of mercy in the message that Stephen presents. Stephen, like the prophets of the Old Testament, takes almost all of chapter 7 of the book of Acts to tell the history of Israel and how God guided in the history of Israel to bring the Messiah into the world. Let's read several verses from Acts chapter 7 and we'll read verse 11 and then I'll tell you uh, the verses that we're going to read. Uh, and I want you to notice that Stephen refers to the history of Israel with the expression, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers, until he gets to the end. And then he changes his tone. Notice verse 11. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. This is during the times of Joseph. And our fathers found no sustenance. Let's go to verse 19. This man, that is Pharaoh, dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Then it says in verse 38, This is he, Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. Notice, our fathers again the one who received the living oracles to give to us. And then he says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of, of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Verse 45, Which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. Do you notice that all during the history of Israel, he's talking about what? He's including himself in the history of Israel. He's saying, our fathers, our fathers. But when he gets to the end of his speech, I want you to notice chapter 7 and verse 52, there is a change of tone and a change of expression. He says to them, now he's bringing the indictment like the prophets did in the Old Testament. They would describe the benevolent acts of God and then they would present the indictment and then the prophet would say, come back to the Lord because he doesn't want to divorce you. Stephen does not say come back to the Lord. He only indicts them. Notice what it says there in Acts 7 verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? You see, he's disconnecting himself from the patrimony 
of those who did these things in the Old Testament? Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. You know, this reminds us of the speech that Jesus gave in the temple to the scribes and the Pharisees, the woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus also did not say our fathers, but he said your fathers. Notice what we find in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 32. Jesus says, fill up then the measure of what? Of your father's guilt. In other words, Stephen is disassociating himself from these individuals who were our fathers until he presents his indictment, and then he says, your fathers did this. Notice Matthew chapter 23 and verse 34. Matthew 23 verse 34. We already read this, but let's read it again. Jesus is speaking a couple of days before his death, and he says, Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of, some of them you will kill and crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And then notice, after he sends the additional messengers, he says, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." Is the stoning of Stephen an extremely significant event? It most certainly is. In fact, allow me to share you some very interesting details about the crucifixion of Christ and the stoning of Stephen. It's like history is being repeated in the stoning of Stephen, the history of Christ. I'm just going to go through this list. You have the text in your handout. Both Jesus and Stephen were taken before the Jewish Sanhedrin for their trial. Both Stephen and Jesus were accused by false witnesses. You can read this in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Both Jesus and Stephen reviewed the history of Israel. Remember the parable of the, of the vineyard that we studied yesterday morning? Both of them reviewed the history of Israel and talked about God sending messengers to Israel and ended their speeches by speaking about the arrival of the Son. Both of them were betrayed by money that was paid as a bribe. Both of them were accused of speaking against Moses and the temple. Both of them, the Bible tells us, were accused by the Jewish leaders of shutting their ears to logic and reason. Both of them prayed that God would forgive the sin of their oppressors. Both of them were taken and killed outside the city. The Bible says that both of them we're innocent. The Bible says that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. Pilate said, this man, I find no guilt in this man. And both of them were afflicted by a mob mentality by those who killed them. Is there an interesting parallel between the death of Jesus Christ and the death of Stephen? Absolutely. In fact, Stephen is repeating the history of Jesus. Had there been any change in the spirit and in the heart of the Jewish leaders, the Jewish Sanhedrin, when Stephen was stoned? Absolutely not. Even though this is three and a half years after the crucifixion of Christ, there has been absolutely no change of heart. Now you remember 
that we read in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, that there would be an event that would bring vision and prophecy to an end. Now that's a significant statement. Go with me to Acts chapter 7 and verses 55 and 56. What was the last vision that was given to a prophet for literal Israel? Who was that prophet? It was Stephen. Because just like the prophets of the Old Testament, he told the history of Israel, and he indicted them for their wickedness. The same way that the Old Testament prophets did. There's no difference. Did Stephen catch a vision of heaven and Jesus at the right hand of God? Absolutely. Acts 7, 55 and 56. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Was Stephen seeing a vision? He most certainly was. Was he a prophet? Yes, in good style, he was a prophet. Was he the last prophet who got the last vision that was ever given for literal Israel? Absolutely. He would bring prophecy and vision to an end. And when Stephen said that, his oppressors became ballistic. Notice Acts chapter 7 and verse 54, and then we'll jump down to verses 57 and 58. It says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Can you just imagine gnashing at Jesus, at, at this follower of Jesus with their teeth? And then verse 57 says, Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city, like it happened with Jesus, and stoned him. And now notice a very important detail. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Did the Jewish theocracy come to an end with the stoning of Stephen? Absolutely. They showed that their case was absolutely irreversible. But I want you to notice something very interesting. As the Jewish theocracy came to an end, because the whole reason why God, why did God choose Israel? He chose them to prepare the way for what? for the coming of the Messiah. So the world would be ready for the Messiah. Did they fulfill that plan? No. Did the message have to go to the world? It sure did. Was the Jewish nation going to take it to the world? Absolutely not. So God says, this is it. I gave you 70 weeks. Last of all, I sent you my son. You didn't fulfill the commission. So now the message is going to be taken to the world of the Gentiles. And it's interesting that when the Jewish theocracy came to an end, God already had the champion for the Gentiles. What was his name? Saul of Tarsus, exactly. Do you remember in the parable that Jesus told of the vineyard workers? He told about the three stages of Israel. God sent out messengers and they killed those messengers and rejected their message. Then he sent further messengers after that. That's during the 70 weeks. And last of all, he sends whom? He sends his son. They're going to respect my son. But what did they say? Oh, this is the heir. Let's, let's take him and kill him. And they cast him out of the vineyard, which represents Jerusalem, and they killed him. And Jesus said, 
what do you suppose God is going to do with them? What did Jesus say? He said, because they rejected the Son, the kingdom will be taken from them and will be given to a nation, the word ethne, which refers to the Gentiles in the New Testament, and will be given to a nation that produces what? That produces the fruits thereof. Did Jesus predict that after his death, the message would go to the Gentiles because the Jews had rejected the message? Absolutely. So Saul of Tarsus is present when Stephen is stoned, and the last vision and the last prophet is given to Israel, but he is going to be the champion that God will choose to fulfill what Jesus said, the message now going to where? Going to the Gentiles. In other words, the kingdom now given to the Gentiles. In fact, notice Acts chapter 22 and verses 20 and 21. <laughs> Here, Saul of Tarsus is describing his experience. And notice what it says in Acts 22, verses 20 and 21. He says, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So notice, he was present there, and he was encouraged them, encouraging them to stone Stephen. But now notice what we find in verse 21. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Are you seeing the connection? Now, when Saul of Tarsus was on the way to Damascus to persecute the church, he heard a voice from heaven that said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my people? That's not what he said. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute what? Me. Me. Were they persecuting Jesus? Yes, they were persecuting Jesus in the person of his church because the church is the body of Jesus Christ. Were they doing the same thing to the body of Christ as they had done to Jesus Christ? Absolutely. And Saul was there when the Jewish theocracy ended, and God said, you're mine, buddy. You're going to be the messenger to the Gentiles. And as I was mentioning, it's very interesting, listen to this. In the book of Acts, chapters 1 through chapter 12, the central figure is Peter. And the message is going to whom, primarily? It is going to the Jews. Do you remember that Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me, where first? In Jerusalem. Who lived in Jerusalem? Jews. And in all Judea. Who lived in Judea? Jews. And then a little bit wider, where? Samaria. And then where? To the uttermost parts of the earth, or to the end of the earth, as some versions say. Listen up now. Acts 1 through 6, the work of the apostles is focused only on Jerusalem and Judea. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned. And after Stephen is stoned, in Acts chapter 7, in Acts 8, you have, of course, the gospel going to Samaria, which were half-brothers of the Jews. 
And then you have, in chapter 9, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And then in chapter 10, all the way through the rest of the book of Acts, the gospel is going where? The gospel is going to the Gentiles. Is the book of Acts showing us that for three and a half years after Jesus was crucified, the gospel went to Jerusalem and Judea? And only after the stoning of Stephen does the gospel go, first of all, to Cornelius through the work of Peter, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the Gentiles. Are you following me or not? Is the stoning of Stephen a watershed event? It most certainly is. In fact, do you know that in Acts chapter 13, Saul and Barnabas are ordained to go to the Gentiles. Go with me to there, there to Acts 13, verses 1 to 3. It says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, that is Saul of Tarsus. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, listen now what the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Was this the official beginning of the ministry of Saul of Tarsus? Absolutely. It's when Saul of Tarsus was what? Was ordained. Now listen to what happens in the rest of chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas, after they're ordained, they go to Antioch of Pisidia. And Paul preached a long sermon there to the Jews in the synagogue. You can read this in chapter 13, just at, at your leisure. So Paul preaches a long sermon like it was customary for him, and some people say, well, Pastor Boy, this stuff that you present is so complicated. You think I'm complicated, complicated. you should read the Apostle Paul. <laughs> There's complicated. Peter said he wrote some things difficult to be understood, but he doesn't blame Paul. He doesn't say, Paul, you should have been clearer. He says, no, the unlearned twist to their own destruction. So the fault does not, does not lay with Saul or with Paul. The fault lies with those who don't study carefully what Paul wrote. You know, one person once said to me, you know, why, don't you, why, why can't we just be happy? Uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> and, and I looked at that person, and I said, you know, that's a good suggestion. The last time that I sang that was when I was in the primary division. That's good for primary kids. But God has given a scripture to challenge our intellect. Hasn't he done that? It's like detective work. It's marvelous seeing the unity and harmony of Scripture as we study it carefully and with prayer and with God's wisdom. And so Paul preaches a long sermon in Antioch of Pisidia to the Jews in the synagogue. And the Gentiles, when they heard, because they were present there, they, they heard the sermon that, that Paul preached. They said, could you come and preach to us next Sabbath? Not next Sunday. Next Sabbath, could you come and preach to us? And uh, the Apostle Paul said, sure, we'll come and preach to you next Sabbath. And the Bible says that the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together. And the Gentiles, bunches of Gentiles, gave their lives to the Lord. And when the Jews saw that, they were filled with anger. They were filled with jealousy. They said, oh, those Gentiles, multitudes of Gentiles accepting the message. If, if, if this grows... 
we're going to be a small group, a small insignificant group. And so they were jealous. And they started blaspheming. Let's read about it in Acts chapter 13, verses 46 and 47. Remember, this is the first trip that Saul, or that Paul takes after his ordination. He still wants to preach to whom? To the Jews. But because the Jews blaspheme, notice what he says. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Why did the word of God have to be spoken to the Jews first? Because they had 70 weeks, exactly. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Is this the kingdom that Jesus spoke about? The kingdom will be taken to you and given to a nation that produces the fruits thereof? Absolutely. We turn to the Gentiles. And then now notice, for so the Lord has commanded us I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for me salvation to the ends of the earth. Is this a clear prophecy, the prophecy of the 70 weeks? I mean, it is amazing how God predicted all these things centuries before they happened. Precisely and exactly. Forget Nostradamus. You have to use, you have to stretch your imagination to find anything there that's being fulfilled today. This tells you exactly when, what, and where was going to happen. And you know what's sad? Almost all of the Protestant world has taken the last week of this prophecy, and instead of applying it to the Christ, it has applied it to the Antichrist, who supposedly will arise after the rapture of the church. It is a serious matter to take a prophecy that applies to Christ and apply it to the Antichrist. And listen carefully to what I'm going to say. What Protestants have done, and also the Roman Catholic Church by doing this, is that they have exonerated the Jewish nation from the terrible crime of crucifying the Messiah. By saying that this prophecy applies in the future, after the rapture of the church, they're saying that the Jews were not guilty of anything back then. But you know what else? Because Protestantism and Roman Catholicism has said that the little horn of Daniel 7 applies to a future Antichrist, they are also exonerating the Roman Catholic Church from destroying the body of Christ during the 1260 years. In other words, what the devil has done in shifting the view to the future, he has exonerated the, the Jewish nation as a nation, I'm not talking about individuals, from the terrible crime of crucifying the Messiah, and they have also exonerated the Roman Catholic Church from persecuting the body of Jesus Christ during the period that is known as the Dark Ages. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Everybody today is looking to the Middle East. Oh, look at the Muslims, they're the enemy. Oh, yeah, look at Jerusalem. You know, the Arabs are going to come and they're going to attack Jerusalem. And while everybody is looking east... Prophecy is being fulfilled in Rome and in the United States, and no one can see it because they're looking in the wrong place. The devil is an expert at directing your attention to where the controversy isn't. Now allow me to summarize this. The 2300 years begin in the year 457 B.C., right? You go forward 69 weeks, that's 483 years, that takes you to the year what? 27. But there's one more week. 
that takes you from 27 to the year what? 34. So those are the first 490 years, and those 490 years are cut off from what? From the 2300 days. Now, so from 457 to 34, you have the first 490 years of the 2300 days. So what do you have to do in order to know when the sanctuary is going to be cleansed? You don't have to be, have the wisdom of Solomon in order to figure it out. All you have to do is subtract 490 from 2300, because the 490 were fulfilled. What does that give you? 1810 years. So basically what you have to do is go from the year 34, 1810 years, which is the remaining portion after you subtracted the 490 years, and that will take you to the precise moment when the sanctuary will be cleansed. And if you do that operation, you will find that the prophecy of the 2300 days ends precisely in the year 1844. Folks, there's no way around it. Prophecy is clear. The reason why the Christian world does not like this is because if they accepted it, they would have to be Seventh-day Adventists. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.